I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Have you ever finished a big bag of chips and wondered how that could have happened? Mindless eating can become a habit. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Giving in to cravings often results in feelings of shame and blame and guilt. Sometimes those feelings make us anxious and lead to more cravings, kicking a vicious cycle into motion. Our guest says willpower is a myth. And instead of practicing self-judgment, we should try some self-kindness. How can we figure out what really makes us feel good? Mindfulness could help us find a better reward than M&Ms. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, breaking the cycle of food cravings. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. People with sleep apnea usually treat this condition with a machine providing continuous positive airway pressure. Now, though, the biggest maker of such CPAP machines will not be selling them in the U.S. The Dutch manufacturer Philips has recalled millions of breathing devices and now will not sell new respironics devices until it has made required changes to its manufacturing process. This is likely to take years. The problem with the recalled machines was sound dampening foam that deteriorated and could be inhaled, posing a possible cancer risk. Although Philips will not be selling new CPAP or BiPAP machines in the U.S. until it has met all requirements in the consent decree it reached with the FDA, it is allowed to provide customer support and replacement components for machines people already own. Women are often warned to avoid medications during pregnancy for fear that a drug might harm the fetus. Of course, there are exceptions when the medicine might benefit the mother. One such medication is aspirin. Doctors often prescribe low-dose aspirin to women who are at high risk for preeclampsia and preterm birth. Preeclampsia, also known as hypertension of pregnancy, can put both the mother and baby in jeopardy. The aspirin study involved almost 12,000 women in six different countries. They were randomized to receive either low-dose aspirin or placebo, starting as early as six weeks into their pregnancies. Women who took aspirin were less likely to deliver preterm or experience hypertension, so the drug was effective. In a follow-up study, Researchers assessed neurodevelopment in more than 603-year-olds. The investigators did not discover any evidence that aspirin was harmful. The lead author stated, We were able to look at development using a number of different instruments and different domains and saw no differences in children who were exposed to aspirin early in pregnancy and those who were not. A new study shows that the HPV vaccine is extremely effective at preventing cervical cancer. 
Such cancers are associated with infection with human papillomavirus, also known as genital warts. The study is from Scotland and utilized medical records. Women born between 1988 and 1996 who were fully vaccinated against HPV when they were 12 or 13 have not developed cervical cancer. That's to say, researchers did not find a single case in this group in the entire country. Approximately 40,000 women were vaccinated at that young age before becoming sexually active. Another 124,000 women got the vaccine when they were 14 or older. In comparison, 300,000 women in this same age group were not vaccinated. Researchers found about 8.4 cases of cervical cancer per 100,000 unvaccinated women. These results confirm earlier findings of HPV vaccine effectiveness from Finland. A study published in Nature Medicine is sending ripples through the Alzheimer's research community. The researchers reviewed medical records from people who had developed Alzheimer's disease before they turned 60. Some were as young as in their 30s, although they did not have known genetic mutations that are thought to cause early-onset dementia. What they did have in common, however, was a history of childhood injections of human growth hormone that had been extracted from the pituitary glands of cadavers. These cases suggest that in rare instances, Alzheimer's disease could be transmitted. This research raises questions about the role of amyloid as the sole cause of Alzheimer's disease. A new study suggests that music lessons might help maintain cognitive function as we grow older. The investigators collected data online from more than a 1,000 British people over 40. Cognitive data from people who sang or played an instrument were compared to test results from people who don't make music. Playing a musical instrument was linked to better memory and problem-solving ability. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Do you ever find yourself eating when you're not really hungry? Many of us snack because we're anxious or bored or just have a craving for a salty, crunchy snack. Is there any way to change habits that are not helpful? Our guest today is Dr. Judd Brewer. He's a neuroscientist who studies addiction. He's also a professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Brewer is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. His latest book is The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Judd Brewer. Thanks for having me back. Dr. Brewer, your book is titled The Hunger Habit, but the first point you make is that so many of us, we're not eating from hunger anymore. You know, maybe a couple thousand years ago we were, but we may not even know what hunger feels like. (laughs) How did we get so separated from our bodily needs? 
Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, and there's this great, this is not just a story of modern times. There was a, a short story by James Joyce from 1914, where he described, I think the book, what, or the short story was a painful case. And there was a guy named Mr. Duffy. And it starts, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> so I think that's even more true in modern day. So we have these great survival mechanisms that are actually really, really tuned to set up, uh, set us up for survival, which is all about, you know, making sure that we're, we're eating when we need to, and we're not being eaten by our predators. And that mechanism has gotten co-opted in modern day, or even some would say hijacked to the point where we get these, our wires crossed, where we're eating in all sorts of situations when we're not actually hungry. You know, this actually, this blew my mind when I was first starting my clinical practice. I was working with a group of, of women, it happened to be all women at the time, who all had binge eating disorder. And for about a month, I felt like I was missing something in translation, where, you know, I was like, what am I missing? And it took me about a month to figure out that they were not, they couldn't actually tell when they had hunger signals versus when they were just eating out of a craving. They said, I have an urge and I eat. I have an urge and I eat. And so there's this difference between hedonic hunger and homeostatic hunger. Homeostatic hunger is the one that says, hey, my stomach's growling, eat some food. The hedonic hunger is, I would say, more is a, is a later, and I wouldn't call it an evolutionary adaptation. <laughs> it's an anti-adaptation because we, we, you know, it's not helpful. It's not healthy for us to be eating, you know, when we don't need the calories. Well, every time we go into a gas station, we are confronted by so many snacks, so many eat me messages it's easy to understand how people would be just, oh, yeah, I wasn't really hungry, but boy, the M&Ms, they were just right there at the counter yelling at me, eat me now. Yes. So, it's like life. It, it, that's that's it, all those commercials on television, you know, crunchy, salty, yummy, eat me. <laughs> yes. Was it was it Odysseus who had to be lashed to the mast of his ship so the siren song wouldn't call him to crash his boat on the rocks? If I've got the mythology correct, you know it's the Eminem siren song that says, "I'm the perfect color. I'm the perfect mouthfeel. I'm the perfect taste. I'm the perfect crunch." You know, I have to say my my favorite uh, peer reviewed journal, The Onion. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> They had a they had a headline uh, that says Doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient, <laughs> you know, because because these things are designed to be addictive. Everything from you know vanishing caloric density to bliss points, you know, it's dialed in to get us addicted. How does it happen that we eat from habit rather than really in order to survive? Uh, so the basic mechanism, and this has been known, you know, Eric Kendall actually got the Nobel Prize in 2000 showing that this is evolutionarily conserved back to the sea slug, which only has like 20,000 neurons. And the way it works is there are three key elements, a trigger or a cue, a behavior, and a result, where from a neuroscience standpoint, we think of it as a reward. And the way it works, so think of our ancient ancestors 
savanna, the the woods, whatever. They had to find food, right? They didn't have refrigerators. So they would go out foraging. And when they would find food, that would be the trigger. They would eat the food. That was the behavior. And then their stomach would send this dopamine signal to their brain that's basically said, hey, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it's there as a memory formation process. So we can remember where food is, right? And and not worry about remembering every little rock that that is inconsequential. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, you, you want to be able to get to the good stuff and you want to do it without necessarily paying attention to stuff that isn't going to matter. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like our brains, you know, they're similar to like a digital camera or something where it only has a certain amount of, of memory space. And so you don't want to be taking pictures, you know, throughout your day. You want, you want to actually take pictures of things that matter. And our brains do the same thing with memories. They form memories based on things that are very emotionally provocative. So when we're surprised, you know, if we have a surprise party, we're going to remember that because our brain just sense, sets off this fireworks show of dopamine that says, wow, was not expecting that. And on a, to a lesser degree every day, when we when something unexpected happens, uh, we're, our brain's going to lay down memory. And part of that's to say, hey, yeah, that's okay. That was surprising, but it's okay. You survived. Or that's surprising, and that almost killed you. You should probably remember that one too. And stay away from that one. Yes, exactly. You know, like walking okay. out into the street, looking at our phone instead of looking both ways. You know, the car honks, and we remember. Oh yeah, my parents taught me this when I, when I was I a kid. I should look both ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's part of how it gets to be a habit. How does do our habits get? And chained in things that aren't helpful to us. Well, this is where it gets really fascinating. So about 20 years ago, my lab started studying, you know, I was really interested in uh, breaking bad habits. So as an addiction psychiatrist, was working with a lot of patients who were struggling with smoking cessation and things like that. And so I started looking into the process and, you know, we had developed some programs for smoking cessation that worked pretty well. And some of the folks pilot testing our programs uh, were saying, hey, I'm actually changing my eating habits. And I was thinking, well, you know, most people gain weight as a because they substitute food for cigarettes. But they were said, no, 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 we're actually losing, you know, we're, we're, we've stopped snacking based on using these tools. And that got me to look at eating. And I, was, I realized that this is actually the core process and the way that it works. So as we talked about with this process of memory formation, it's called positive and negative reinforcement. That same process is still at play in modern day when we have, you know, refrigerators and food delivery and 24-hour diners. And our brains start to learn, hey, you know, I could use this for other times when I'm not actually hungry. So when we're stressed, if there's something sweet uh, or some comfort food, that hence the name, uh, we eat something and we can get, you know, we can numb ourselves, uh, as one of my patients put it. We can distract ourselves with something that tastes sweet. And so we learn, oh, you know, grab some M&Ms or grab a you know, chocolate bar or some ice cream when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling lonely or when you're angry or when you're, you know, all these all these emotions start to become associated with eating because they trigger us to eat as a way to make ourselves feel better in the absence of hunger. That's where hedonic, the term hedonic hunger comes from. It's based on, you know, feeling rather than needing food. 
We've talked to behavioral economists, and they've they've actually done some experiments where the person in the office has a big bowl of candy sitting on the desk, <laughs> and everybody who goes by just reaches down and grabs a piece. You know, maybe ten o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon. It's like there it is, yum yum. And if you take away that bowl of candy, people are less likely to snack. You don't even have to move it very far. Just make it a little less convenient. So this idea of convenience and habit, like, oh, yeah, I do that every morning at about 10 o'clock when I walk past George's desk. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we we remove those cues that have nothing to do with hunger? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I won't go into the this type of research because it's been really well done. It sounds like you've interviewed some good folks on that. But you're highlighting something where you know there's several things that we can look at. One is the environment. So if you put the M and M's just out of arm's reach, <laughs> you know, and somebody has to take that extra step, uh, that can be very helpful. And there have been tons of experiments done in cafeterias, at workplaces, and things like this where you put the healthier food options at a certain place versus the unhealthy food options. Etc. You know, there's a reason that all of the prepackaged, you know, candy and stuff that has a shelf life of a thousand years is right at the um, at the checkout counter at the grocery store, right? Because you're standing in line, and it's easy to just reach over and put it in your. Well, maybe I'll. I don't really need some gum, but this looks good, or or whatever this cookie is, or or something else. And so those things are strategically placed so that we'll buy more, right? That's what a consumer economy is all about. So that's one way that we can affect our environment, but that takes everybody working together, you know, (laughs) and let's just say the folks that are looking to profit off of us consuming food-like objects, um, you know, they're not as excited (laughs) as we in the public health space (laughs) because we want to help, you know, we want to help people's health at a population level. So those types of things make a lot of sense. Uh, The other piece that, and this is where my research comes in is like, how can we affect things on a personal level? You're listening to Dr. Judd Brewer, professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. His books include The Craving Mind, Unwinding Anxiety, and his most recent, The Hunger Habit. After the break, we'll talk about things we can do as individuals to help ourselves break the craving cycle. Why does Dr. Brewer say willpower is a myth? We'll get Dr. Brewer's advice on breaking our habit loops. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Cocoa Pro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember, that discount code is PPOD15. 
15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. When we give in to cravings, how does that make us feel? Often, eating or drinking too much makes us feel guilty as well as uncomfortable. How can we break the cycle? We're talking with Dr. Judd Brewer, Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. He is Professor of Behavioral and Social Sciences in the School of Public Health and of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine. His expertise is in utilizing mindfulness in novel ways to help change addictive behaviors. Dr. Brewer's books include The Craving Mind, Unwinding Anxiety, and his latest, The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry, and How to Stop. Dr. Brewer, just before the break, we were talking about how we can uh, reduce the convenience, as it were, how we can change the environment that invites us to eat when we're not actually hungry. You mentioned that there are some things we might consider doing on an individual level. What would those be? Well, the first thing I'm going to suggest is something that probably anybody that's struggled with eating habits has tried and failed at, which is willpower. So often we think, oh, well, I just need to build more willpower. And how can I do that? It turns out that there's a fair amount of research suggesting, I'll just sum it up as uh, willpower is more myth than muscle. Well, hang on a sec, because I cannot tell you how many messages we get on our website from people who are critical of, you know, the new drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy and Mongiorno and Zepbound. It's like, oh, people shouldn't take those drugs. They just need willpower. Well, maybe it's <laughs> won't power. Or won't power. <laughs> right. And what the and there's a lot of shaming and blaming going on yeah. these days. Yeah. Um and and, and 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 what you're suggesting is that willpower doesn't work. Yes. And I just want to highlight the shame and blame, which actually is anti-helpful because when somebody's out there telling themselves or other people that they should or shouldn't do this, it makes people feel guilty. And what does guilt do? It triggers people to eat. <laughs> I have tons of patients who just, you know, they feel guilty about not being able to develop their willpower, which ironically just triggers them to eat more. So it I just sounds like to, a vicious cycle. It does. So for anybody out there, you know, who is thinks that they've got the answer and tells, you know, wants people to uh, develop more willpower, I would just invite them to you know, be reflective about that. And make sure that it's it's. I'm sure the intention is good, but the outcome isn't always. <laughs> so, I'm not so sure the intention is good. <laughs> okay. Well, but, uh, but we'll give you we'll, we'll give, give you the benefit credit for of that. the doubt, right? Right, Gla but yeah, but glass let's being just half say full. <laughs> that that 
It doesn't work. Blaming and shaming, forget about it. And what about practicing self-judgment or Mm self-kindness? You've suggested there's a big difference. There is. And so let's talk about that for a minute, and then we can talk about other ways to actually leverage the strengths of our brain if willpower is, is more myth than muscle. So often, boy, and I can, I can just, I have a number of patients that come to mind when I think of this, where they've gotten in the habit of judging themselves or feeling guilty about their not being able to control their eating behaviors uh, and then feel ashamed. You know, guilt is about the behavior, shame is about the self. And so guilt, they feel guilty about not being able to control themselves. And then they feel ashamed, you know, of, of themselves. So it, it, the two can actually feed on each other. <laughs> the guilt, you know, oh, no, I can't believe I did this. And then the shame, oh, I can't, you know, I'm a bad person. And then those just make people feel bad. Often, I think those habits get set up because, you know, it feels better than doing nothing, even though beating ourselves up is still, you know, an act of, of not, not an act of self-kindness or self-compassion, but it just, you know, when somebody feels like, well, I don't know anything else to do. I might, you know, this might help me change in the future. Uh, The short answer is it doesn't. And it actually sets up habits of guilt and shame. So I just want to highlight that for anybody that's gotten stuck in one of those cycles, you know, it's not your fault. It's your survival brain that's just kind of gotten miswired a little bit. And in contrast, we can start exploring what it feels like when we're kind to ourselves. And for some people, somebody just yesterday said to me on a, on a group that we were working with some folks with, with addiction, and I said, you know, what's that feel like? And he said, foreign. <laughs> being, being kind to myself feels very foreign. And so often when we're in an addiction cycle or even just a, a habit of beating ourselves up, it just feels really strange to be kind to ourselves. So I'll even suggest that people start with, well, what's it feel like when somebody else is kind to you? And they can generally feel into that. What's it feel like when you're kind to someone else? They can generally feel into that. And then they can sometimes remember a time when they've been kind to themselves. And the short answer is, well, let me ask you all, you know, pop quiz, hot shot. What, what feels better being <laughs> mean to yourself or being kind to yourself? <laughs> feels much better to be kind to yourself, obviously. <laughs> <Yes>. Kind <laughs> wins every time. But you just used the A word, addiction. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of addiction, they think of, okay, smoking, they think of opioids or other drugs. Alcohol, they, perhaps. Yeah, alcohol. Mm-hmm. They don't think about food as something that could be addictive. And yet, I suspect that the food industry has figured this out, and they make their foods addictive. It's like you can't just eat one chip. Yeah. And um, – Help us better understand how certain foods hack our brains and our reward systems. Sure. Well, y'all are probably familiar with the company R.J. Reynolds. Yeah. So what, what, what were they famous for making and still do? They were famous for tobacco. Yeah. So back in the 80s, when the industry got busted, you know, uh, by Congress, <laughs> cigarettes are not addictive. Wait a minute. <laughs> Um, they started looking to diversify. So if you look at the ticker, I think the ticker tape for R.J. Reynolds is R.J.R. NAB because they uh, merged with Nabisco because they said, we've got a bunch of engineers. Let's put them to, <laughs> let's put them to work. <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're going to um, have to diversify our portfolio, let's make 
food addictive. And there was a great book. Uh, and and then actually first, in, I think I was introduced to Michael Moss, if, if I've got his name right, who wrote a wonderful New York Times Magazine expose on the food industry way back in 2013. Uh, which actually has a Doritos as the uh, cover art for the article, <laughs> which is perfect. Uh, but the idea is, you know, they've got all these engineers that can design substances that we ingest to make them more addictive. So this, you know, there's all these things from the bliss point, which is this perfect magic formula of sugar, salt, and fat, you know, the perfect ratio that gets people addicted to vanishing caloric density. So things like Cheetos, you know, you put it in your mouth and your brain's like, oh yeah. And then your mouth's like, did I just eat something? Cause it's gone. <laughs> and I didn't chew. <laughs> Wait, and let me try that again. Oh so, yeah, I so, ate something. No, yeah. I didn't. I ate something. No, I didn't. <laughs> and then the bag's so gone. Your, your brain is therefore not registering, oh, I have consumed adequate calories. Um, your Your tongue has registered this is so delicious. It tastes like more. That's what Joe's mother used to say about um, Hershey's Kisses. Tastes like more. I love that. Tastes like more. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, you know, even, geez, when did the low fat craze come about? Was that back in the 80s? It was in the 80s. Yes. Yeah. So here's here's a fun fact about that. This was a boon for the food industry because with the corn subsidy and you get these, you know, high fructose corn syrup that is like dirt cheap, they they figured out that you they could spin low fat as healthy. And when you spin something as low fat and you take fat out of food, our body says, Well, I'm not full. I'm gonna eat more. So they found that they could actually get people to consume more of low fat foods. So they'd actually take in more calories, which they would ironically store as fat <laughs> when they when they converted that sugar to fat. Um, but then they could build us forever as this healthy alternative to, you know, to eating fat. And we now know that that was certainly more of a myth and certainly worked extremely well for getting people to con- to overconsume and and take in more calories. And it turns out that human biology is a lot more complicated than just the very simple concepts that we've been taught relative to nutrition, like calories in, calories out, or uh, don't eat fat, it'll make you fat. We're, we're, we're far more complex creatures than that. But I would like to talk about your specialty, which is changing our habits. So yes. we've talked a little bit about how we develop these habits, there's a trigger. Uh, Joe feels stressed in an airport because the plane is late, and so he goes and he sees that there are good and plenty at the uh, kiosk, and he buys them. The behavior is to eat the good and plenty, and then there's the reward, which is instantly he feels great, and then a little bit later... Not so much. <laughs> this is your story. I'm hijacking, Joe. You well, can chime in. I finally learned that that's not good behavior because it ultimately results in feeling bad. But at the moment, it always seems like such a good idea. So how can right. we Right, and there are plenty the... of them. <laughs> there are so plenty of good and plenty. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so h- how do we break these habit loops that you have described? 
Well, I think of this and what we found over the last couple of decades of research is that it's a, it turns out to be a three-step process. Don't ask me why, but here's yet another <laughs> you know, universal rule of threes. And the first step is really being able to recognize what the habit loop is, or even just starting with what the behavior is. So you know, being able to identify when we're eating outside of hunger. So it could be boredom. It could be we're walking by the you know, the dish of candy or M&Ms. It could be that we're in the clean plate club. So we've learned to overeat, to clean our plate as a kid. And we now, and you know, it, it seems strange to leave food on our plate. There could be a number of reasons that we're eating when we're not actually hungry. It and so could the, be that the plane is delayed and I'm yes, feeling stressed. Yes, yes. This tra- great example, you know, the stress eating. And that's when we reach for the comfort food. And so just recognizing, you know, what the what the behavior is. Why am I eating, basically? Uh, and if it's out of hunger, recognizing that as well, because that's what that's the actual natural signal trying to get through and saying, guys, listen to me. You know, I'm the one that's going to help you survive. <laughs> the other and, guys, and that's not so appropriate much. then. Yeah. 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 So that's the first step. And so we could go as far as mapping out the entire habit loop. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? Or we could focus in on the behavior itself, just saying, oh, here it is. What, you know, why am I eating? Am I, and, and what, what is it that's driving me to eat? Is it the, you know, is it the homeostatic signal of hunger or is it the hedonic signal of, you know, I'm stressed because my plane's late or something like that? Well, th- then what? So after that, and honestly, that is extremely helpful for people. I can't tell you how many times in my clinic, my patients, you know, when I just map out a habit loop with them, it's it's like a light bulb goes on in their head and they hadn't noticed this for their entire life. And they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> and so I think of that as if we don't know how our brains work, we can't possibly work with our brains. And so just that, that first step helps us know how our brains work. Oh, this is how we form habits. This is my survival brain trying to help me out, you know, and, and also that helps us step out of the self-judgment of like, hey, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I need to be fixed. No, we don't. We're, we're, we're wonderful as we are, uh, whoever we are, wherever we are in our, in our journey. And so the next step is uh, really leveraging the strength of our brain. So I mentioned earlier that willpower is more myth than muscle. When you look at the mathematical equations for forming habits and breaking habits, because they're the same equations, they don't include the term willpower at all. It's not a variable in the equation. So the way we set up, I think of it as we set habits, and most habits are helpful, right? You know, having to relearn how to walk and talk and eat, you know, would be exhausting every day. So we, we form habits as a way to, I think of it as set and forget. You set a habit and you forget about the details. And the way we set a habit is based on something being rewarding. So as a kid, if we learn to get our spoon in our mouth, right, that gets rewarded because we get food in our mouth as compared to all that when we were first learning to eat, you know, our, <laughs> our face was a mess. <laughs> right. It ends up all over the the. the- um, high chair tray and everywhere else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we might not remember that, but our parents certainly do, you know, and it was cute at the time, probably. <laughs> and even, even better when we actually could get, deliver the food more efficiently and effectively, <laughs> you know, and more regularly. So we learned to set these habits based on reward. 
And the reward could be calories. It could be, you know, anything that's positively reinforcing that says, oh, that was good. Do it again. And so we set this up and then we forget about the details. And so the let's use a concrete example. So let's say that I eat a piece of broccoli and I eat a piece of milk chocolate. Now, my brain is going to compare those two and it's going to say, hey, from a caloric standpoint, this milk chocolate is more calorically dense. And so my brain's going to say, hey, I prefer the, you know, if I had given a choice, I'm going to pick that milk chocolate. So it's going to set up what's called a reward hierarchy in our brain. And we're going to, you know, it's going to say, hey, you know, you don't have to every time, you know, compare broccoli to milk chocolate. It's, you know, it's going to prefer the milk chocolate. And then for me, I don't know, but I'd be curious for you all and where the good and plenty fall within this reward hierarchy. But for me, if I eat some dark chocolate, hands down, I'm taking dark chocolate every time. And then you add a little sea salt, mm-mm-mm, maybe a little cayenne pepper. <laughs> I'm with you. Know. you. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, I'm never going to slum it into the 70s because like, it's like my brain's like, I'm not going to eat chocolate that's less than 70%, um, you know, cacao uh, content or whatever. Because it, dark chocolate just tastes so much better. And for me, I don't even notice, like, I'm satisfied with eating a little bit of it, whereas milk chocolate just drives me to eat more. It says, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like that, you know, that tastes, tastes like, like more. more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I never, it actually, it doesn't feel that great. It doesn't taste that great. And I don't feel good for eating an entire bar when I'm driven to do it versus just savoring a few really tasty squares of some dark chocolate. I don't know. Does that, does that square with you all? It does. And we're going to stop for a break, but when we come back, we're going to try to find out how we can actually break some of those habits. You're listening to Dr. Judd Brewer, a neuroscientist renowned for his 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit. He's professor in behavioral and social sciences at the School of Public Health and psychiatry at the medical school at Brown University. He's also a research affiliate at MIT. His books include The Craving Mind and Unwinding Anxiety. Today we're talking about his brand new book, The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. After the break... We'll learn more about what we can do about our eating habit problems. How can we choose different rewards so that we don't eat things that make us feel bad? The idea is to leverage our reward hierarchy. What really makes us feel good? Dr. Brewer tells us about someone who was able to step out of the food craving cycle. We'll get details on the Eat Right Plan and how it works. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. 
Is it possible to change long-established habits? Sometimes we get into a loop and just repeat a behavior that's familiar, even if it's counterproductive. How can we break habit loops and learn new ways to manage our cravings? You know, Terry, I was able to break my cycle of stress eating good and plenties when I travel by paying close attention to how that candy made me feel after about mm, 20 or 30 minutes. How did you feel? Not so good. The trick is to use mindfulness to pay attention to your feelings. That way you can figure out which rewards really help and which are illusory. Today we are talking with Dr. Judd Brewer, an addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He's a professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Brewer is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. The New York Times bestseller, Unwinding Anxiety, New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. And his latest book, The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. Dr. Brewer, we were just talking about rewards. And we we agreed that most people, given the choice between broccoli and milk chocolate, We'll usually rate the milk chocolate as more rewarding. I'm assuming that all of the people who have come to see you about their eating habit problems have different things that are their specific rewards. How do we deal with this in order to change the habits? Well, this is where we can leverage the strength of our brain. So we were talking about setting up these reward hierarchies, right? So milk chocolate, and for me, dark chocolate is the highest reward value. And we can leverage that in two ways. And so our brains are going to, if we, let me preface this by saying, there's one critical ingredient for changing any habit, and that is paying attention. So let's say that somebody introduces a new chocolate bar to me and I pay attention. And if it's like the best chocolate that I've ever had, I get what's called a positive prediction error, as in it's better than expected. It's better than, you know, my gold standard for chocolate. And so that's going to go high up in the reward hierarchy. And I'm going to learn, hey, I should eat this one more or I'd like to eat this one more. On the other hand, if I'm like, meh you know, mouthfeel isn't quite there, I've had better, I get what's called a negative prediction error, meaning I learn, oh, this isn't such a great chocolate. Both of those require awareness. So we can leverage awareness, and we all have awareness, right? We have to pay attention or we're not going to survive. So we can leverage something that we all have as a natural capacity. And we leverage it by paying attention as we eat. So, for example, my lab did a study that we published now a couple of years ago with this Eat Right Now app where we actually had people pay attention as they ate junk food or whatever their habitual eating was, and also as they overate. And what the, the hypothesis was that as people pay attention as they overeat, they're going to actually start to realize that overeating doesn't feel very good, and they're going to get that negative prediction error. And then it's going to be much easier to stop overeating just by paying attention. Notice how willpower is not part of this equation. Are you ready for this? 
So guess how long it took for that reward value to drop below zero? I'm going to guess that if you're actually paying attention, it doesn't take that long. Absolutely. Absolutely. So within 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overate, that reward value dropped below zero and they were shifting their behavior, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because we don't have 20 times to learn that the tiger or the bus is dangerous, right? We have to adapt pretty quickly or we're, we're not going to survive to pass on our genes. So how do you do that with food? Well, you bring awareness as you eat. So for example, can you think back to the last time you overate or had a big box of good and plenties? Well, I've given up the good and plenties for good, I think. <laughs> but but I have to admit that there are times when chocolate mint ice cream, you know, oh, that was so good. Another scoop would be even better. Mm -hmm. And so that has happened. Great. So that's a great example, actually. And I, I talk about this pleasure plateau where if we truly pay attention with each bite, our very wise body is going to let us know when we've had enough. And so with each bite, because if you like chocolate mint ice cream, it'd be great if you paid attention as compared to, you know, often we're craving that next bite while we've got ice cream in our mouth and we're not actually enjoying <laughs> the stuff that we're consuming. So if we're going to eat it, we might as well enjoy it. So if we pay attention as we eat each bite and we ask, hmm, you know, is this one better than the same as or worse than the last bite? We can see when we start to hit that pleasure plateau and our body is telling us, hey, that's enough. Now, one caveat here is that we can't just be scarfing it down so quickly that we're not registering fullness signals. That takes 15 to 20 minutes. So if we are truly enjoying and savoring that ice cream, let's say a, a scoop or two scoops of ice cream, and then we're not immediately rushing to the freezer for more, we can truly see where we've hit that pleasure plateau. And that awareness helps us do two things. It helps us stop when we're full right, before overconsuming because that doesn't actually feel good and it, we, we lose the joy of eating it. And two, here's the bonus, there's more for later. So, Dr. Brewer, I wonder if you could tell us a story about one of the people, perhaps one of the people in your book, The Hunger Habit, who have had success using this approach. Mm. One story, I was going to say, because there are so many great stories. In that there book. are a lot. Yeah, I just yeah. want to thank all the folks that just put themselves out there to help others by telling their stories. I just want to thank um, the folks in our program, my patients, for this. So let's pick an example. Uh, there was a, uh, there's a woman named Jackie uh, who, uh, ironically, uh, I met her. So she started using our, was one of the earliest users of our Eat Right Now program. This is the program, this app that we developed that we could study and look at all these, you know, behavior changes like 40% reduction in craving-related eating. So she came in early to our program. And what I learned later was that she's actually a yoga and a mindfulness instructor. And so she came in really feeling guilty because she's like, I teach mindfulness and I can't control my eating behaviors because she had a long history where she would, um, she had binge eating and um, she would cal calorically restrict and, you know, and do all these things where she just got in these really vicious cycles of eating and just felt completely out of control. Uh, and then uh, discovered 
this process, you know, this three-step process that we're talking about. I'm just realizing we've only talked about two of the three, so we'll talk about the third in a minute. Um, but she started to realize like that she could actually learn to be with her cravings. And she described this uh, as these craving monsters. So the more she fought with the craving monster, the more it fought back and eventually always won. So that was a struggle she'd had for a long time. And so we taught her through the program to really start uh, playing with a like this paradoxical, which can even sound crazy thing to where it's just like open to your craving, like let it come in and even use curiosity as a way to, it's like kryptonite, you know, it's like you bring out this curiosity kryptonite and suddenly the craving monster isn't so powerful. It loses all its strength. And the way that works is the curiosity helps us learn to not just run away from our cravings because then they'll always run after us, but turn toward them and then explore them. Oh, instead of, oh no, here comes this craving, I have to fight it, we can go, oh, well, what does a craving feel like? And they can start to notice that these are physical sensations, they're restlessness, it's heat, it's tightness, it's tension. And the more we can bring that, oh, of curiosity in, the more we can open to it and see that these are just physical sensations that come and go. And the, the irony is, or the paradox, is that we don't have to do anything but be with them and they'll come and go on their own. And when they come and go on their own, we've stepped out of the cycle. That's the third step is stepping out. And we can step out through being with our experience, just learning to open to our experience. I love this phrase, the only way out is through, you know, and, and it is true <laughs> for, for cravings. Well, I wonder if you could give us a little bit more detail about how Jackie was able to step out of that cycle. I'd be happy to. So there were, and this is where I think of these two superpowers of curiosity and kindness working hand in hand. And the way that that works, so she had a lot of self-judgment and a lot of shame around her eating, especially, you know, she's a yoga instructor. She's training to be a mindfulness teacher, you know, and so starting with bringing in heaps and heaps of kindness and learning that self-kindness is much more rewarding than self-deprecation or self-judgment or you know self-hating. And so from this reward-based learning standpoint, we have to help our brains see what behavior is more rewarding. And mental behaviors are just as important as physical behaviors. So if the old habit is beating ourselves up, and this is something that Jackie worked with, was just recognizing, oh, here I am beating myself up again. That's the first step. The second step was asking, what am I getting from beating myself up and feeling into her direct experience and seeing that beating herself up was actually harming her? It felt worse and it would, it would drive that cycle. So she would become, she became disenchanted with beating herself up because it wasn't helping, it was just making things worse. And then shifting into this third step, she could compare judging herself or beating herself up to being kind to herself. And the self-compassion won every time. And because it was more rewarding, it became her new habit. So every time she could recognize just an old habit of self-judgment, she could immediately start to shift and bring in the kindness and the self-compassion. And that opened the door for curiosity. And these were kind of hand in hand, it wasn't linear. But she could start to get curious about the craving monster. I love how she describes it, you know, this craving monster. 
and she could turn toward that craving monster. And, you know, I think the first time she did this, so I have this rain exercise uh, that I, that, that we use in our programs where it's like, you recognize that there's a craving. That's the R you allow it to be there. And you even like open to it. And she even commented, you know, I say, smile, it, it can be okay. And she's like, the first time she heard that, it blew her mind. She's like, what? This could actually be fun. <laughs> so she's like, and she says, okay, wow, let, let's do this. And so she just like smiles and like opens to this craving. And then the I stands for investigation. So we get curious, oh, what does this craving feel like instead of, oh no, you know, like bracing ourselves for impact. And then the N stands for note, where we note our physical sensations from moment to moment. So is it tightness? Is it tension? And we can ask, oh, what is it? That's where the curiosity comes in. And then we can just name it. And that naming helps, you know, kind of name it to frame it. I think um, Dan Siegel might have come up with that. But the idea is that if we can name something, we can put a frame around it and see that it is just a thing. It's not us. So a physical sensation is not me. Whereas often we think, you know, we're so identified with our physical sensations that we feel like, well, this is just me. I have no control over this. But when we can note it, like, oh, there's tightness. Well, is tightness going to make my head explode? No. Is tension? No. And then we can start to watch these sensations come and go on their own and learn to ride them out. And that's what Jackie learned to do. She learned to ride these cravings. And that put her back in the driver's seat where she had control. She realized, oh, I can just be with these cravings. They will come and go. And that control comes from being with them rather than doing something to try to fight them or run away from them. Dr. Brewer, I wonder if you could help us better understand how we can apply the principles that you've been talking about to some of the other habits and behaviors that we would like to change. Sure. So where would you like to start? Because <laughs> I think this process works for any habit. So, Well, you've had a lot of experience with people who want to break habits, whatever they may be. So mm -hmm. you can better name some of those habits that people are feeling very frustrated about and how you would apply them to whether it's cigarette smoking or drinking alcohol or gambling or maybe even sexual behaviors. Help us better understand how to apply these principles. Yes. So I would say for anything, you know, gambling, alcohol, uh, porn addiction, things like that, we can apply this three-step process. So recognize what the behavior is. First step. Second step, ask, what am I getting from this? Right. And truly feel into their direct experience, not just think about it, but really feel into it. Is it just driving more of this consumatory behavior? Is it providing brief relief and then shame and guilt? Um, is it taking me away from genuine social connection and interaction? So, for example, porn addiction is a big one there where people are very isolated. So what is what am I getting from this? And then asking, you know, well, what's better? And simply stepping out of the habit loop is generally better for folks, especially if you think of addiction. You know, the definition I learned in residency was continued use despite adverse consequences. And so if there's some adverse consequences to the behavior, simply not doing the behavior is often that bigger, better offer uh, is, is the way I think of the third step. So let's use a concrete example. Let's say that somebody is glued to their social media channel so they can recognize, oh, 
I'm, you know, here it is. I'm picking up my phone again and checking my, you know, my feed. There's the behavior. Then they can ask, what am I getting from this? Right. And what is it short lived? Is it the endless scroll that's just getting me mindlessly scrolling? And then I wake up 30 minutes later and don't realize where the time's gone. What are all the results of that? You know, there might be a cute puppy video here and there, but they're probably getting intermittent reinforcement because they don't know when those are when the actual good stuff is going to come. And, you know, all the rest is is crap. Uh, So asking, what am I getting from this? And then looking at what it's like when they when they don't overconsume. And this doesn't mean that, you know, we should delete our social media accounts. I think a lot of people think, well, just do a dopamine fast. And again, that relies on willpower. So I'd say good luck, you know, try it, see how how long it works for you. And the other thing is I find my phone extremely helpful. So I want to be able to have control over my phone rather than having to limit myself. And so we can we can say, well, what's it like when I go on social media once a day for five minutes versus when I'm constantly scrolling, when I'm bored or don't want to, you know, I'm procrastinating uh, on a project or something. And we can start to see what feels better and then we can get back in the driver's seat. Now, you've mentioned apps and there are all kinds of apps on our phones for recording what we eat, recording how many steps we take, recording our exercise, all kinds of things that are designed to help us be in charge of our calories in, calories out, if you like. Um, (laughs) And you've suggested in The Hunger Habit, this isn't helpful. Why not? Yes. So I learned the formula calories in, calories out in medical school, and the formula is still true. But what I didn't learn, and they the, the lecturer made it seem so simple. Well, just tell your patients to stop eating cake and eat salad instead. And I'm like, okay, noted. Um, if that's on the boards, I can pass that question. But then it wasn't about how do you actually get someone to do that. And so the assumption was, well, just tell them and they'll stop doing it. <laughs> this is where willpower, more myth than muscle. So we won't go into that again. But the way that that works and the way that we can leverage this is really by learning to leverage the strength of our brain. And so the counting piece actually gets us more distance from ourselves than in touch with ourselves because we think, oh, well, I can, you know, I have this number of calories that I can eat. And so I can eat that many the rest of the day as compared to, am I actually hungry? And how does this food land in my stomach? I remember somebody specifically using a calorie counter and he had a bunch of calories left and he's like, I'm just going to eat an entire little serving of icing, you know, like like this prepackaged icing that comes in a container that looks like an eight ounce can. And he just took a spoon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. Because he's like, I like ice. I like icing and I can have this many calories. So he calculated exactly how much icing he could eat and he just ate it. So if he paid attention as he ate that versus like, you know, eating like whole food plant-based or something like that, you know, and then asking himself, how does my body feel compared one compared to the other? It's a no brainer. So when we are so distanced from our bodies and we're so focused on some app, and I should say these calorie counting apps are notoriously terrible at being accurate. Um, They try to do better, but they're never very good. Uh, so, and especially for our needs, you mentioned this earlier that we are all very individual. We aren't, we aren't just all based on some formula that an app can spit out and tell us to do this, but we do like certainty. 
And so these apps can be seductive due to their, based on their certainty, and saying, well, I can have this number of calories so I can eat icing or whatever. But that takes us farther and farther away from our direct experience. So instead of the counting, I would say we would count on, <laughs> we can count on our bodies to tell us everything that we need to know. So we start to recalibrate and to kind of reconnect with our bodies and listen to them. You know, I think of it this way. Our wise body are, is much stronger. Our feeling body, let's put it this way. Our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. So if we think I can have this number of calories, it's very different than if we feel, what was it like when I just ate a whole tub of icing? Dr. Brewer, there are now GLP-1 agonists that are the hottest drugs in the pharmacy. And we're talking about Ozempic and Wegovy and Mongiorno and Zepbound. And we could just keep going because the pharmaceutical industry has hit gold and they are mining it like crazy. There are going to be commercials nonstop. Yes. Telling the, the world that uh, here is the solution to the obesity epidemic. And why they work is because they make people feel crappy. Cool. Well, yeah, and, they, and, and, and crappy. <laughs> that too. And literally and figuratively, yeah. because diarrhea is one of the side effects of, of these GLP 1 agonists, but they, they also cause vomiting and yeah. nausea. I mean, there's a long list of side effects we won't go into. But for now, apparently, millions of people, at long last, mm. there is the magic pill. Actually, it's more the magic injection. But I'm curious, you know, from your catbird seat, your thoughts about these these pharmaceuticals, which, by the way, will probably be ha have to be taken for forever. That right. is to say, after you stop taking them, the weight will come back on and they're not inexpensive. They can cost anywhere from, you know, from about five hundred dollars to a thousand dollars a month. Month in and month out, Depending. year in and year out. Depending right. on your insurance, of course. Right. That, right. And we the can, insurance. We can talk about the gold vein, you know, in terms of patents and then how they can find ways to extend the patents through making them oral, you know, and they'll wait to do, my guess is they'll wait to do that so they can extend the patent life even more. So that gold vein is going to be mined for a long time by the pharmaceutical industry. And for people that have felt completely out of control or and or I should say the people that just don't want to have to do anything. They just want to be able to sit on their couch. They want to be able to have their cake and eat it too, or have their cake and not eat it because they feel nauseated. This is this is a boon. You know, so I'll often folks, and I've seen this with my own patients where it's even been interesting to hear where they're you know, they talk about their cravings for food, but also I had a patient whose cravings for alcohol went away for a while. It was about four months and she was like, wow, I just don't have cravings to drink anymore. And then four months later, she's like, this thing stopped working. I don't know what it was. Um, so I would say it's too soon to tell in terms of how magic these bullets are going to be because the long-term studies haven't been done. They, you know, they're literally happening right now in, you know, basically phase four because these things are on the market. So it's it's unclear uh, what the long-term health benefits and consequences are. 
Uh, they're certainly going to try to rack up all these studies showing that it helps your heart and it helps all this. Well, of course, if you <laughs> if you have better cardiovascular health, your cardiovascular system is going to benefit. So it makes complete sense. It's not. I don't think it's anything magic. <laughs> and again, I'm not the researcher on these things, so I, I, you know, I may be missing something. But if you lose weight, it's been shown forever that it's it's heart healthy. Right. So, of course, if you're losing weight, you're going to see these heart healthy benefits no matter how you do it. Uh, what I would say with these, so I would say, caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. We don't know what the long term consequences and benefits are of these medications. And regardless, it's really important that we learn how to work with our minds. So, these can be, you know, ideally, if somebody's going to be taking one of these GLP 1 medications, they, it would be great if they were also learning how to work with their minds and how to learn to work with cravings. So if they're like my patient, where, you know, four months in the thing, you know, it's like the switch isn't working anymore. Uh, they, they, they've got something that they can use for the rest of their life that doesn't cost them anything and doesn't have side effects, which is awareness, you know, like curiosity and kindness, boy, let's get those in the water. <laughs> we could get people to be kinder to each other and more curious as compared to divisive game on. <laughs> Dr. Brewer, I wonder if you could break down into some detail what the eat right plan boils down to. Yes. This is so the eat, we developed the eat right now app. I think it was back in 2014 was when we first launched it. So it's been 10 years, <laughs> which is pretty crazy because back then, you know, most, uh, most apps on phones were like angry birds or some video game. So we had we had taken this leap of faith of you know testing out this hypothesis that we could actually deliver therapeutic you know treatments uh, through somebody's phone because if they're picking up their phone anyway they might as well have their therapist in their pocket instead of you know their their uh, billboard that they're paying for. So we developed this this you know it's basically twenty eight sequential uh, modules that are about um, ten minutes a day where it's now fully animated, where people learn these concepts of how their brain works and how to work with their brain. And then we've got a bunch of you know theme weeks and th ways that they can get more in, in depth into it. But it basically teaches them this three-step process where they learn how their brain works. They learn how to uh, really pay attention as they consume food and then how to break free from the habit. And we, we, there's a study led by Ashley Mason that was published back in, geez, five years ago now or more where she got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating in people who are using the app. So, you know, from a scientific standpoint, if we go straight onto the mechanism and say, okay, if it's this reward-based learning mechanism, let's target that with awareness. Does it work? And the, the short answer is it works pretty well. And this is also the same program that we were studying to see how quickly people's reward value changed. And that's where we got it a drop below zero within 10 to 15 times of somebody using what we call the craving tool that basically has them pay attention as they overeat. Dr. Judd Brewer, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Judd Brewer, a neuroscientist renowned for his 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit. He's professor in behavioral and social sciences at the School of Public Health and in psychiatry at the Medical School of Brown University. He's also a research affiliate at MIT. 
He's written several books, including The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, and his brand new latest book is The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with the People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance all in one capsule. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,372. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you could share your comments about today's interview. You can also reach us through email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. This week's podcast has some additional information on how we can use the principles we've been discussing to change other behaviors besides food habits. We'll also find out why the old mantra, calories in, calories out, is not useful. Dr. Brewer will also share his thoughts on Ozempic and Wegovy and all of those other drugs that are so popular these days, you'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also get regular access to information about our weekly podcast. So you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.